We're going to talk about worship this morning. What better way to end the series that, that we were doing this spring over the past few months on the attributes of God than to focus on worshiping the God we've been reflecting on. There's no better response, there's no more fitting response to thinking and learning about what God is like than to respond by worshiping him. But what is worship? It's a word we throw around a lot, but what actually is it? Because it's not just singing songs, even though that's often the way we use the word today. And it's not like there's a sermon part of the service and an announcement part of the service, and then there's a worship part of the service. In fact, worship is a much better thing than even what happens here on Sunday mornings, even though we tend to call it a worship service. Do you know that in the New Testament, when God's people got together, they met together, nowhere, not even once that I can find, does the New Testament use the word worship to describe what they did when they gathered. Think about that for a minute. So what is worship then? Well, today's passage teaches us a great deal in answer to that question. And to get us started with today's passage, let me tell you a story about two boys named Champ and Skinny. Champ was his mama and daddy's pride and joy, their firstborn son. He had everything going for him. Champ grew up to be a real man and to follow in his father's footsteps vocationally. He was successful. He was wealthy. He was a leader. He was a solid Christian. He attended church faithfully every Sunday. Sitting next to him in church was his younger brother, Skinny. Skinny's name about tells it all. He was, well, not exactly an accident, but definitely an afterthought. His stature was small, he didn't amount to much, and nobody really expected him to. He was always living in his older brother's shadow. Well, the story of these two brothers, believe it or not, is the story of Cain and Abel, the story we're looking at this morning. Listen again carefully with me to verses 1 and 2. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So Cain is champ. He was Adam and Eve's firstborn son. And in ancient cultures, the firstborn son was groomed from the time that he was a child to take the leadership of the family. He also received a double portion of the inheritance. Notice what Eve says about Cain. She comments on his name, which sounds like the Hebrew for brought forth. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Has it ever struck you that she says man? Not not baby, not even boy, but man. She already has great visions for what this newborn will grow up to be. And Cain grows up to be a farmer, just like his pa, which is pretty respectable if you live in a farming town. And then there was Abel, baby-born Abel. The text barely gives him notice. All it says is, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. No fanfare, no comments about what his name means. And what does it mean? Well, if you look it up, it means breath or vapor. Abel was insignificant like the morning mist. 
you have to realize that the Old Testament storytellers don't give us many details. And so whatever details they do give us are very significant to understand the story they're telling, especially the meanings of people's names. You always want to know what those mean because those are rich with significance. So from what we've been given, which is very little, it seems that even from the time of his birth, no one expected much from Abel. He didn't even become a farmer like his father. He went off and became a shepherd. So Cain and Abel, champ and skinny, two very different kids. Which of these two do you think God invited to the parties? Which would you envision as to how you'd want your kids to turn out? Which would you follow on YouTube or Twitter? Well, as as the story continues, we very quickly get a picture of what God thinks of these two. Let's look at verses 3 to 5. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his faith was downcast. Both Cain and Abel look like good Christians, so to speak, to the casual observer. I know that's an anachronism. Both worship God, both chose to bring God an offering, and both desired to be accepted by God. Two men, two religious acts, but God didn't accept both of them. Literally, verse 4 reads, the Lord, paid no atten- or, sorry, the Lord paid attention to Abel and to Abel's offering, but to Cain and to Cain's offering, the Lord paid no attention. So different from how their parents viewed them and treated them, given the very limited information we have, and so different from how the culture likely would have viewed these two boys. God does not look at a person the way we look at him or her. In this story, God pays no attention to status or wealth or natural ability. Instead, God pays attention to worship. Now, I know we often think of this story about Cain and Abel as having to do with jealousy and murder, and that's true. But I'd submit to you that it's as much a story about worship and about the hearts of each of these two sons from which their worship flows. And so right here in Genesis 4, in the very first story that we have after humanity has been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, as they're going about making a life for themselves outside of the garden, we have a very important watershed lesson right here at the beginning in what it means to be human. A lesson of first importance regarding what matters. And that has to do with what's in our heart when it comes to worship. The key to understanding what's going on in this story lies in the little Hebrew word which is behind the English word offering, where both Cain and Abel brought an offering. The Hebrew word is uh, mincha. And what's a mincha? It's, It's a gift. It's a present. But not just any gift, not just any present. It's a gift that an inferior gives to a superior. It's a gift that you would give to a king to acknowledge that king's superiority. Your mincha conveys to that king your homage, your submission. The the mincha conveys your estimation of that king's worth in your eyes. That mincha conveys your worship 
After all, what is worship? Well, it comes from the Old English word worth-ship. Worship, worth-ship. It expresses what someone is worth. A mincha, um, by the way, is often translated tribute in the Bible. In, in 1 Kings, for example, we read that, that Solomon, the great king of Israel, ruled all of the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, which was down by the Mediterranean, as far as the border of Egypt. And these countries brought tribute. They brought mincha, and they were Solomon's subjects all their lives. So mincha is about kingship. It's about greatness. You bring a king, a mincha, to honor him, to acknowledge by this present, this gift that you bring, that they are greater than you. You bring a mincha to worship. And so in the Old Testament, the Israelites also brought minchas to their ultimate king, to God. They recognized that God, their great creator and the ruler of the universe, was their saving God. The God who was their faithful God. They were in covenant with God. And so God was worthy of minchas. God was worthy of true worship. And so each year, the Israelites would bring the first grain that they harvested to God. And every Israelite knew that it was appropriate to give God only the very best that they had because he was their great king. And so Cain and Abel, right back here at the beginning of Genesis, are bringing God a mincha. They're the very first two in the biblical story to do it. And their doing so is the very first story told in the Bible after the Garden of Eden. So the lesson that we're going to learn is very important Now, there are various theories about why God accepts Abel's mincha, Abel's offering, and doesn't accept Cain's. Some think that Abel's is better because an animal died in the process and blood was shed. Others say, no, God accepted grain and vegetarian offerings in the Old Testament too. That was fine. Well, as always in these kinds of debates, it's best to look carefully for answers in the text itself. And notice what the text says. It says, Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, in those days when people were not so well fed and certainly not calorie conscious, the fat was considered the best part. Yes, we, we know that, right? Even though we know we probably shouldn't. Um, so, you know, you think of marbled steak, right? Abel brings the best parts of the firstborn of his flock and God accepts his minchah. It's the best that Abel has to bring. But what does Cain bring? He simply brought some of the fruits of the soil. Not the first fruits, not the best, just some. Perhaps not even his own. doesn't even say his soil. And God paid no attention to Cain's mincha. Abel offers God his very best. Cain offers what is second best what's unremarkable, what's ordinary. Abel's mincha shows that Abel recognizes that God is his great king. Cain's mincha shows that Cain doesn't really think God is that great or worthy of much honor. Let me illustrate this with a a story. One time um, in past times, our country had a very popular and a very excellent president. 
And two small-town boys received invitations to go and meet the president. And both were really excited, and their mother suggested that they each bring a small gift to show their uh, respect and appreciation to the president. So both boys scrambled off to their rooms to find a gift to bring. A short time later, the big day arrived, and they got to meet the president. And after shaking hands, the first boy reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a small box, and in it was a shiny fishing lure. He said, Mr. President, sir, it's well known that you love fishing. And I love fishing too. And so I wanted you to have my very best lure. Use this lure on a lake in deeper water and you'll catch some great trout. The other boy then went up to meet the president and he got out his gift as well. He said, sir, I brought you a gift for fishing too. And he he pulled out an old rubber worm from his pocket. He said, I just got a bunch of new worms, and I was going to throw this one away, but I thought maybe you could use it. Two gifts, two expressions of worthship, which come from the heart, which express honor, which express value, which ascribes worth to the one to whom it's given. But what do they express? Which expresses Great, greater honor, which expresses greater value and worth, the best lore or the old worm? Abel's gift or Cain's gift? Right at the beginning of life outside the Garden of Eden, right as humanity's story kicks off, we have this story of worship, this story of two minchas, cautioning us about our hearts, about our worship, about how we really feel about God. Because guess what? If you keep reading the story, you realize that so much else flows from the sort of heart we have to worship. So much else flows from whatever our real worship is. Do we recognize God as great? Do we recognize God as worthy? God is awesome, right? We just, we just looked in, in the past couple months at, at, at all of God's amazing attributes, that God is all-powerful. We sang about it this morning, immortal, invisible, God only wise. God is ever present. God is all knowing. God is wise. God is holy. God is loving and just and faithful and merciful. God is all these things. God is amazing and wonderful. Do you agree? If you do, then then let me ask you, is that just lip service? Or does it show up in your worship? Do you just sing about it on Sundays or maybe as you drive in your car and you listen to K-Love? Or does it actually show up in your life? Do you give God your very best? Or do you give God only your second best? When was the last time you took your very best, the thing you prized, the thing you delighted in and you gave it to God? You gave it to God for no other reason than to worship God, to honor God, to say that no matter how much you delighted in that thing, the fact is you delight in God even more. This is what we find worshipers in the Bible doing. We find Abraham in Genesis 22, taking his very own precious beloved son and offering him to God. In that story, he tells his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there to do what? To worship. 
Later in the biblical story in 2 Samuel 24, King David wants to worship God because of God's mercy in entering a great plague which struck the Israelites. And so David wants to buy a piece of land where there's a threshing floor because that's the exact place that the plague stopped. Angel, or a God, uh, David saw the angel that was bringing about the plague at that spot, kind of put away his sword, metaphorically speaking. That's the way David saw it, and the plague stopped. And so he wants to set up an altar in that spot to honor and to worship God. And the guy who owns the threshing floor, Aruna, says, that's a good cause. You you don't have to buy it. I'll give it to you. Take it. Go ahead. It's yours. And how does David respond? He says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings which cost me nothing. Or how about in the New Testament? On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion in Mark 14, a woman takes an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. This was likely her greatest possession, and what does she do? She breaks the jar and she pours the perfume on Jesus. And what do the others there say? Some of them are indignant. They protest. Why this waste? This was worth more than a year's wages. At least we could have used it to help the poor or something. But what does Jesus say? He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? What she has done is a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing to me. You see, these others, they were practical, they were responsible, but they missed something that this woman got. And that is the inestimable worth of the one she was worshiping. And so she gave him what was likely the very best thing that she had, and Jesus praises her for doing it. And you know, this story really nails me because I'm really careful about our money and about our possessions. I'm cautious, I'm practical, I'm a saver, I'm not a free spender. And what this woman does seems reckless and it seems wasteful. I mean, more than a year's wages, how much is that in modern terms? 50,000, 100,000, 200,000? Gone like that. Ouch! But then I've got to stop and think, Wait, am I forgetting how much Jesus is worth? Do do I think that giving it to Jesus was a waste? Do I not have a heart of worship like this woman had? Because like David and like Abraham and like Abel, she understood what it means to worship. She understood how great God is and how much God is worth, not just in her head, not just in her songs on Sunday mornings, not just with lip service, but in her heart and with her life. That's worship. And it makes all the difference. It's the difference between being a Cain and being an Abel as you sit in church and offer your worship. So let me ask you, does your life, does does my life show how much God is worth? There's an old song which says love is found more in the things that you've given up than in the things that you've kept. And I think that's true of our love for God and our worship to God. What have we given up? What have we sacrificed in worship out of a recognition of how great God is and how much God is worth? When we think of what we treasure most, does does the thought of sacrificing it to God and giving it up seem like a waste to us? And if so, what does that say about God? If, if that's our view of God, if, 
if our God is not really worth very much, then, then our whole life's going to flow out of that, the way we live our lives. And so God would warn us, as God warns Cain in the story, verse 7, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So what is worship? It's, it's about expressing to God what we feel God is worth. It's about expressing to God how great and how worthy God is. How worthy of our allegiance. How worthy of our loyalty. How worthy of our obedience. How worthy of our admiration and our delight. So we can worship God with our time and energy. We can worship with our money and our possessions. We can worship with our career choices, with our work, with our vocation. We can worship with our priorities and with our schedules. Worship is about so much more than the songs we sing and the words we mouth on Sundays. I remember another preacher one time telling a story about a landlord coming to collect the rent from his tenants. And and the tenants tell the landlord, sorry, we're not going to pay the rent this month. And the landlord says, wait, you're not going to pay the rent? Don't you realize I own the place you live in? And they say, yes, we acknowledge that you're the owner, but we're not going to pay the rent. Well, the next day the landlord comes back and tries again. Come on, he says, pay me the rent. And they reply, oh, hi there, it's the owner. Hi, owner, we're not paying the rent. Next day, same thing. And he says, no, pay me the rent. But they say, you know, we honor you as the owner. In fact, you're a good owner, but we're not paying the rent. Next day, same thing, same response. And still, he wants the rent. And they think, why isn't he pleased? We've, we've acknowledged he's the owner. We, we've praised him as a good owner, a worthy owner. I know, let's make a song for him. Maybe that will really please him. So, you know, they sit down. They have a little service. They read through the lease. And, and then they, the next time they see him, they sing a song to him. They sing, we honor you. You're the owner, an awesome owner. You're worthy, and we acknowledge it but still they don't pay the rent. You can see where this is going, right? Do you think the owner's pleased with their singing? With with their praise, with their acknowledgement of his being the owner? No, it's all lip service. If they really acknowledge him for who he is, then they need to pay the rent, don't they? Well, how often do we do that to God? Acknowledge him with our lips, but not really worship him, not really ascribe to him worth with our lives. As as we get ready to close this morning, I want to take a few minutes to invite us to, to look at our hearts. Do we have hearts of worship? Do we value God? What is God worth to you? Is God worth a lot? And if God is, what what can you offer God? I remember in college being faced with the choice of what I'm going to do with my life. Am I going to follow my own agenda, my own dreams, or am I going to offer my life, my future, my career choices to God? And, and choosing at that moment to offer my life as an act of worship to the amazing God who's totally worth it led me on a long winding path, which puts me where I am today. And while that's a big choice that, that every kid faces in their late teens and their early 20s, we, replace, we, we face it repeatedly after that in various ways, especially at key decision-making junctures in our lives. 
In Romans 12.1, Paul exhorts us, offer your body, your whole self, as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable act of worship. So how do we do this? What for you is something precious, something worthy to give to someone great? Is it your future, your vocation? Is it your time now, your current schedule for this summer? Is it your service, where you put your time and energy? Is it your money, your possessions? Is there an area of your life which you need to honor God with? You need to obey God in that area of your life. I want to give you a a second to think about it. What do you have that's of significant, of sufficient value to you that it would adequately express your worship to who God really is? That it would adequately express what God is worth? Is God worth it? If God is, will you give it to God? Or are you hesitant? And if so, why? Is God not worth it? Would it feel like a waste to give it to God? And if so, will you wrestle with what's in your heart? What does your heart really think God is worth? I'll give you just another minute to think about all that. how do we give our mincha to God today? Because we don't live in the days anymore where you'd put it on a physical altar and burn it up as a way of offering it to God, as the smoke and the flames represented it rising up to God in heaven. So how do we give it to God today? Well, that can take some wisdom and some discernment and some creativity. It's something I or others you respect spiritually could help you to figure out if, if it's not clear to you. But if you're willing to offer it To God, I want to give you a tangible way right now to do that. We have a bell. (laughs) We have a flame. We have a fire extinguisher. And you should have in your bulletin a little slip of paper. If you don't, we'll have some here in the front that you can come if, if you'd like to take one. Um, what I want to invite you to do um, is uh, to write down that thing that you want to offer to God on this little slip of paper. And during the closing song, uh, if you write a word or a phrase on that as, a, as an act of worship, which you'll have to follow up with your life, but as an act as we're here together in worship, during the closing song, if you'd like to, you can come and uh, burn it in the flame. And we'll make sure we don't burn down the log cabin in the process. Let's worship.